and welcome to Talking Codswallop. And I have, I'm yet again lucky enough to have a returning guest for this episode. And I always love having a returning guest because you get, you know, to see where the person's up to in life and how things have been going for them since you last spoke to them. So it's always great fun. So uh, on this week, we have a returning uh, guest, Mr. John Bukowski. John, how are you doing? Very good, James. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. Well, I was looking back, and thank you for coming back on, but I was looking back and worked out it was August the 28th last year, around that time that we kind of published our episodes. It must have been some point in maybe early August that we did our interview. But wow, you know, time flies. It's terrifying yeah. in some respects. Yeah, it does. How much has changed in a year, uh, you know, considering that we'd probably be quite deep in things like COVID at that point? I mean, obviously, it's still bouncing around, but. Right, right. Yeah, well, that uh, COVID was uh, on everybody's mind for oh, mm. from about for about two years. So, yeah, it mm-hmm. would have been in August of last year would have been uh, uh, still still quite an issue. Still very prevalent. And, and since then, many other things have become prevalent, some better than others. Um, so what I would say, John, is, uh, and we kind of touched upon this when we were talking just before we recorded, that for somebody somewhere, or many people somewhere, this could be their first episode. So they've never, ever heard Talking Codswallop. They've never, ever heard, um, you know, about your great work. So could you be so kind as to do a, an introduction? Tell us, for those who are new and maybe those who are old who just want to hear again, a bit about yourself, please. Sure. Uh, I like to joke that I'm the most overeducated fiction writer in America, or maybe the world. <laughs> uh, I, I started my career as a practicing veterinarian, and I practiced in Michigan for uh, small animals, dogs, and cats for about seven years. And then I transitioned to doing public health work. Uh, mm-hmm. I got a master's and then a PhD in public health epidemiology, which, uh, thanks to COVID, some people actually know that means disease detective, not skin mm-hmm. doctor. Um, <laughs> uh, skin doctor or bug doctor, I get very various ones. Um, and I did that for about 20 years, and I transitioned from that to medical writing. So I was basically writing journal articles and, and uh, thought pieces for uh, uh, editorials or uh, uh, website content, things like that, consumer handbooks. And uh, I was doing that as a contractor, and right around 2008, when the Great Recession hit, I lost a lot of my clients because they just weren't paying anybody to do anything. Mm -hmm. And any writer will tell you, and I was a medical writer at that time, but any writer of any kind will tell you they always want to write the great American novel Mm -hmm. or the great (laughs) English novel or what have you, Um, a Lithuanian novel. But... uh, I uh, and I had a, I finally had an opportunity to do it because I had time. My mm. wife was still working, so we had some money coming in. So I said, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I should probably do it. And I about six, seven months, I drafted my first novel. It's still sitting on my computer somewhere uh, and probably always will be. Uh, it's it's what Stephen King would call a trunk novel. Uh, but it got me going. So you've still uh, got it on your computer. That's oh yeah, very, yeah, it's still there. I, so, I take a look at it every once in a while. Um, I've got to, I've got to ask. I'm going to interject to this point, John. Would you ever 
publish it. Well, you know, if you say you made a few tweaks to take it to the level, I'm assuming that's why it kind of sits there, that it's maybe not sure. quite yeah. the level you now yeah. right. right. Would you tweak and release? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a matter of, uh, and, and I think this becomes, as people become more popular, work becomes more popular, it's easier and easier to do that. Uh, because uh, right now, it's I've got other things that are higher quality. Uh, and I shouldn't say that so much as more professional. Uh, because that was my first, that was my initial uh, novel that I'd ever written. And I enjoyed writing it, but it would need a lot of work. And I would certainly consider that if, uh, you know, with an opportunity arose. But uh, but anyway, that got me started. And so even when business picked up, I in my medical writing, I started, I kept writing some short stories and started work on a couple other novels, got started and stopped, started and stopped. Uh, and then I completed another novel around 2014, 2015, and that still has yet to be published. So you know, when people say, you know, is this your first book? You know, because you've published a book, you go first one published or first one that I wrote. Mm. Uh and because most authors, I mean, if you talk to anybody, uh, very successful, uh, best-selling authors, they'll tell you, oh, I wrote seven books before I got my first one published, or I wrote six books or nine books or whatever. Um, so there's a lot of those still sitting around, and I work on them every, every now and again. Uh, but finally, in 2022, actually in 2021, a small publisher in Indiana here in the United States uh, got interested in a novel I'd written called Project Suicide and wanted to publish it. And that was my first published novel that came out in, as we mentioned, 2022, I think around May. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a that's kind of a political techno thriller. It's the story of how a cure for Alzheimer's disease gets perverted into an assassination drug that caused people to commit suicide. Um, and uh, just recently, this past, probably April, my second novel has come out to the same publisher, and that one is called Checkout Time, which is available now through Amazon and every, every place, really. And uh, it's, it's the story of how uh, of a uh, extortion bomber who's looking to make money from hotel chains, pay me or I'm going to bomb your hotels. And he gets pursued by a beautiful FBI agent and a handsome government researcher until he turns the tables and the hunters become the hunted. Because, I mean, I to just go back to just when you mentioned the entire, you know, the, the, the outline for Project Suicide. It, it, right. I mean, I, that's why we had you on the first time. And I remember. Right. Correct. Loving the, 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 the story, the, the novel uh, at that point, you know, I have had a chance to read it, but I absolutely love just listening to the outline yeah. grabs you. It does. It honestly, and I don't say that I'm not blowing smoke, as they say, it really does grab you. Well, so, it, it is what what they call in Hollywood. It has, uh, uh, you know, it has it has legs to it. Yes. It has a high concept that kind of catches the imagination. I still ask the question, how is it not a film or a TV series or something? Because that would lend itself wonderfully. Hey, wonderfully. If, you, if you know anybody in the business, because the biggest the biggest issue with those, and I think almost every author would love to have their work made into uh, 
a treatment for a movie, but uh, or uh, a TV series or what have you. But it's a matter of getting it in front of the right people. See, Project Suicide has Amazon written all over it to me. It's like a, a running Amazon series, you know, <laughs> kind of in the in the vein. Well, to be fair, as just you knew it, but in the vein of like the uh, the kind of like the the uh, the work they did with the Jack Ryan series, I could see that yeah. kind of working really well. So. What I'm going to ask, John, is tell me how you made the shift. So obviously you've written Project Suicide, right? Uh, which is a great novel. But how did you then change your focus and find the time and the inclination? Because obviously you will be tired from writing that it'll get you. How did you get the drive to write your, your next novel? Well, that's the thing is that a lot of people, this is their idea of how a novel is written. An author goes off to a cabin for two months, writes a bestseller, comes back, sends it to a publisher, and, you know, collects a million dollars. That's not quite how it works. Fiction writers... Can, can I it, just check? Do you collect the million dollars, though? No, yeah, I'm, I'm still waiting for that. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, the, uh, the, uh, any writer worth his salt is constantly working on a day-by-day basis on something whether that's short stories, whether that's reviving a novel that they have, whether that's writing something new. Uh, I always say you've got to treat it like a business and a hobby. It's a business because you try to do it every day, like you know, a plumber or a, or, or a carpenter. You're working every day. But it has to be thought of like a hobby because you have to do it for the love because the paychecks yes. are few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You're always working on something. And at the time that I was getting Project Suicide published, I had recently completed uh, Checkout Time. Mm -hmm. And like I said, there are several other novels that I have in various drafts. Uh, Some are completely finished and I'm I'm putting them through a third or fourth revision. Others are uh, uh, almost finished. But you constantly have things in the pipeline. But I'll tell you the... The genesis of uh, checkout time, the idea came to me even before I was doing fiction writing. I was on a business trip, and I looked up at the ceiling of my hotel room. I was on the fourth floor, which was the top floor. And there was a trap door in the ceiling. And I thought, yeah, you could put something in that. What could you put in that? That's quite a terrifying but realistic thought. I mean, yeah, you I also, mean, I'm also well, starting to think you mind reading me, John, because that was going to be my question. Where did all this come from? And you just right. go bam straight, <laughs> straight to saying it. Well, that's that's the idea. It's the it's it's writers are basically great. What if people? Mm-hmm. What if you put something in this trapdoor? And what could you put in it? I mean, you could put uh, a mob money. And you could have the trap door open and the mob money would fall out of guy's feet. And now he's involved with the mob chasing him. So you have a, a kind of a crime thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have it be government secrets. And now you have an espionage thriller, you know, a hard drive or something that falls out. Uh, my mind, and this will tell you something about my personality, jumped immediately to bomb. <laughs> But I, I would say that's probably quite a realistic thought. It, right. I wouldn't I mean, I, say it's too. I wouldn't say it's too too all. And it doesn't suggest there's a problem you're thinking. I think you're right. actually thinking with a realistic mind. 
Well, I, I also grew up as a bit of a pyro. You know, I love firecrackers. <laughs> I love I, anything that burned or blew up. I kind of, uh, I kind of really went toward that. Uh, and uh, so to me, bomb. Okay, put a bomb in there. Well, why would you put a bomb in there? Uh, you could just be a nutball. You could be what? And there was a movie that came out about oh, 45 years ago that I always liked that not many people have seen called Roller Coaster. Uh, I've heard a, of that. I've heard a 19, of that It was a 1970s thriller. Uh, had George Siegel and a couple other good yes. people. And uh, it's all about a guy, extortion bomber, extorting mm -hmm. money from uh, uh, entertainment group, people who have roller coasters and amusement parks. And I think that taps into a very a primal thing with people. You know, how safe are amusement park rides? And so I said, aha, extortion. Hotels, just like amusement parks, people go into them without much thought of their safety. They assume everything is safe. <clears throat> what if it's not? Mm. And it's so true. That was, it's, it's, it's a bit like getting into a plane. We always assume and pray that everything will be fine and dandy. Right. But we don't really know because as you, I mean, I guess as you're alluding to, we are at the whims and the, the safety checks of somebody else, an entire other team. Exactly. And unlike a airplane, a hotel room, there is no screening procedure. Oh, God, yeah. You're going to tell me. You can me bring anything you want in there. <laughs> you could bring a backpack full of uh, uh, plastic explosive. You could bring a backpack nuke. No one's mm. going to check. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I said, okay, perfect. This, these people are vulnerable. Hotel chains are vulnerable and perfect thing for a, for a uh, arsonist or uh, a, a, a mad bomber, as it will, who wants some money quick. And that was what started me going down, uh, down checkout time. <clears throat> Well, what I always like with kind of your work, to be honest, uh, John, is you're seeing a level of reality to what you're creating. And sadly, when I thought about checkout time, I was thinking also that, that I mean, you hit the nail on the head perfectly when you said about the fact that there's no real, you know, safety protocols for a hotel. And ah. unfortunately, we saw that in, it was Vegas, wasn't it? I think where there was a uh, shooting, if memory yeah. serves me, with a guy who got it. I mean, still my mind boggles how on earth he got so much artillery into a hotel room, but it obviously shows that it can be done, that there is no real check of, you know. Yeah, they just, and, if, you, if you walked in with that backpack full of explosives, all they would say to you is, here's your room key, the elevators are over there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, you don't get there's no bomb sniffing dogs. There's no police patting you down. Nothing. And uh, so uh, so you're right. That's uh, that's a vulnerable industry, which made me think it would be a prime target for an extortionist. And on top of obviously you've you know, you've drafted and created this great story. How does the characterization for these people come into place? What is is there anything that kind of influences you, the genesis of of the characters? Sure. Well, the there are I would say two protagonists in it. Uh, the main one is uh, my uh, government researcher, 
And that's a little bit biographical, autobiographical, because I have been a government researcher. I've worked in state government. I've worked in uh, uh, the federal government and environmental health and epidemiology. And so I drew on that a little bit. Now, <clears throat> this uh, the man's name is Thomas Tomasinski, which naturally he gets stuck with the nickname, which he does not like, Tom Tom. <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. And uh, so... He's he's Tom Tom. And so he's my male. Uh, he, he's a bit of a ladies man, which is something I never really was. But I, uh, that, I was just going to say, John, I find that slight hard to believe because looking at the amazing. <laughs> I mean, the thing that gets me with you is and I said this when we first ever spoke and it still hits me to this day. You have one hell of an amazing kind of backstory, you, you know, yourself, all the things you've done on top of the fact that you also do bits of kind of stage work and acting. You, oh, no yeah. one can ever accuse you of not having, you know, uh, too many, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, quivers and arrows sort of thing. You are a, you're an incredibly talented individual. Well, thank you. But uh, so, yeah, so that character was a little bit autobiographical. Um, and my other protagonist is a F FBI agent. Now, mm -hmm. she's a beautiful young lady, about 28, who where her good looks are almost a detriment because she's in a man's world, law mm. enforcement, and uh, her name is Sally Butterworth. So naturally, she gets the nickname Sally Pancakes. And Sally Pancakes and Tom Tom kind of have a mutual attraction, but Sally's all business, and mm. then they get caught up in this thing with uh, the extortion bomber who we know only by the, the pseudonym Conrad Hilton. Oh, very good. When, he sends, like when he sends in his tapes and stuff, telling them to follow his instructions, is Conrad Hilton. And uh, so uh, they're chasing Conrad, and eventually Conrad takes an interest in, in, in Tom Tom, loves mm -hmm. the name, and now he's chasing Tom Tom, and it goes back and forth. And uh, does he get his money? Does he not get his money? Uh, uh, yeah. Are there more hotel bombings? You know, there's there's all this stuff that happens. Now, one thing that I really liked about writing it and the writing in this particular one, sometimes writing is really hard. I mean, it's always hard, but sometimes yeah. it's really hard. You just got to draw it out. It came really easily for checkout time. And I could hear the characters in my head. I could see the scenes. But the most fun about doing it, I think, was the research I got to do. Uh, because, as I say, with a guy who's a bit of a pyro, I got to look up how you make napalm at home. You can make it at home. Uh, how you? Uh, Please don't tell us how. And um, really, <laughs> I'm hoping I'm hoping the FBI isn't like tracking your like, every move. <laughs> they're probably You're not watching on a list somewhere. Feed. But uh, uh, how to make thermite? You make thermite at home. A highly combustible, intensely burning, how to make plastic explosive, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. And I, I took the research a little farther. And uh, because I have an admitting to anything. Hang on, John, you're not admitting to anything. It's going to get you in no, trouble. No, I didn't take I didn't take that research any farther. But uh, <laughs> I, I went with my research a little farther than I typically do. Um, I knew it was a, I had an FBI agent, which would involve me being with uh, 
inside FBI offices, FBI field offices. Mm -hmm. uh, two of them in particular we're going to feature in the story. One was in Knoxville, the field office in Knoxville, and the other was the field office in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, because my characters basically go between southern Ohio and eastern Tennessee. Mm -hmm. um, and for those of you who don't know, an FBI field office is like it's like a, a police headquarters for an area. The FBI has field offices in big cities uh, that cover the entire country. We have five, I think there's about 25 field offices. And then there's smaller substations called resident agencies. But I knew I was going to be that my characters are going to be inside these two field offices. And typically, we've all seen enough uh, television and movies to get an idea in our heads what an FBI field office inside would look like. I mean, Silence of the Lambs, you see it in, uh, Michael Mann's Manhunter, uh, mm -hmm. TV shows like CSI and the FBI and things like that. So mm -hmm. you could get by with just basically using that, let the audience fill it in. Mm -hmm. But I thought it would be nice to go the extra mile and see if I could actually get inside these places and take a look and have a, you know, have a tour. So I contacted both field offices, the Knoxville and Cincinnati field offices. And, uh, the Cincinnati field office said, no, they, uh, the special agent in charge, and they're all special agents. They're not just agents and special agents they are all special agents, but the special agent in charge of that field office said, no, uh, and Knoxville, they said, sure, when do you want to do it? So, uh, firstly, I'm very impressed by your guts to even reach out. Yeah, and it's, it's quite simple. You just contact their uh, uh, public information uh, person, and there's, there's emails listed. And a uh, very nice lady gave me a one-hour tour of the uh, uh, Knoxville field office. I met the special agent in charge talked with the armorer about kind of what kind of weapons they used, saw the uh, command post where they do day-to-day uh, -day, uh, interaction with the public, you know, the, uh, uh, the people handle calls and coordinate. Uh, saw all four floors and got some very nice material to dot within the book so that people get that behind-the-scenes feeling, that feeling that I'm actually looking at the FBI office. And in some instances, you are, because it was my experience that got fed into it. Um, and that's the thing about doing research for a novel. I, I do a, uh, a workshop on researching novels uh, that uh, I'm, I'm giving this summer. I gave it last summer as well. And uh, research really is the spice in the soup. It is the thing that gives the person the feeling, this guy's authentic. He mm -hmm. knows what he's talking about. You don't need a lot of it, but you need enough for people to say, I'm going to believe this, and now I'm going to follow along. And I guess, the I mean, yeah, because if you are doing the correct level of research for anyone who's reading it, it becomes something they can get more, well, they, they will buy into it, as you kind of say it. Right. And they will feel they're living it. 
I mean, I've got to also, again, what really, you know, impresses me on the content in the FBI is you got to know you got a yes. But obviously, the, the beauty is that I guess if you look at it from the FBI's point of view, they will do some deep research into you to make sure you are who you say you are. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, a- absolutely. I think it's funny when I was talking to people like the armorer or the people in the, uh, uh, you know, the, the radio command post and things like that. My uh, my host would say, this is Dr. Bukowski. Uh, he's writing a book. And he, so I'll let you know he's a writer. Watch what you say. Uh, <laughs> Because you know he's going to write it down. <laughs> yeah, Potentially, it will, it will, it will, it will end up being in. Um, right. in don't you know, say in anything the, you don't want. You don't want in print. In history and, forever. I've got to ask: Did you have to run anything by them beforehand? No, all I had to do was show my credentials at the uh, the way the Knoxville field office is set up. It's a very beautiful building, four story building. It's uh, a park like setting. And outside, there's a gate with a little guy in a kiosk. And you show them your credentials, give them a driver's license and stuff. And then they give you a day pass. Mm-hmm. And you clip that on and they, they open the gate for you. Now you walk down a pathway. That was quite pretty. There was, uh, it was summertime. There was bushes on the side and some flowers and stuff. And then you walk up to the main doors and you open the main doors and you're in this lobby that just projects power and respect. It's got a marble tile floor where that's a mosaic of the FBI seal gleaming at you. The walls are kind of a dark mahogany paneling. And along one side, there's the wall of heroes. All the agents who have died in in line of duty are projected there. Uh, and then there's benches around the side, uh, leather benches. And so when you come in, it's quite impressive and a little intimidating. And you wait there until they come fetch you and take you around the first floor and second, you know, what's, what have you. That is how I can tell you're an author and a very good one, because you are painting for me an incredibly good page that I can visualize in my mind. Um, so when the, but my, my other kind of thought is obviously, you, you know, you, you you got in because you obviously would check who you are and they see, you know, they see you are who you say you are, etc. Do you have to give them a copy of the novel in advance? No, that's the thing. Really? Is, I was, at the time, the novel was in a draft form and mm-hmm. I was going to I told them I was going to backfill some information on the that I got from the tour on there. And there was never any request. I, I told them right up front, I said, I am not going to portray the FBI in a bad light. Mm-hmm. That is not my intention. And I don't think I will do that. And I did not. Um, and that was fine. They, they didn't seem to need to approve it or have a desire to approve it. Interesting. I thought they'd be like really going at you for information, but no, but obviously they, they recognized you as being a trustworthy, uh, you know, right person. So that's a good yeah, thing. And I, and, I, and I think the FBI realizes just like the Office of the President and other things, uh, British Prime Minister, it's kind of public domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they are they are well-known, highly publicized organizations and people and 
you know, you can basically say what you want about them with very, it's like, you know, uh, high profile politicians and sports figures and stuff. And there's not too much they can do if you don't outright uh, libel them. Uh, was there any, I mean, you could probably go into so much detail. Was there anything that kind of surprised you when you visited the FBI, an FBI office? Um, I'm trying to think. Not particularly. Uh, the one thing that was a little surprising is that I got the impression from watching TV shows and stuff like that, that uh, agents, uh, government agents, basically could choose their own weapons. Uh, and I was told by the armorer that is not the case, that for the FBI, they are trained in three things, a Glock 19 pistol, mm -hmm. a Remington pump shotgun, and the AR-15 M16 platform or mm -hmm. rifle. And that's all they use. You cannot, for example, carry a different kind of pistol revolver or, or, or a Smith & Wesson automatic or whatever. You carry a Glock 19. And uh, so that was a little surprising to me. But uh, other than that, it was uh, kind of as I envisioned in my head, which says that other people who have done movies and, and TV shows and stuff about the FBI do a pretty good job. That's good to know. And you weren't led into like an X-Files style spooky basement. Or if you were, you probably can't tell me about it. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, like I said, I was a it was a one hour tour. The most impressive thing was that lobby. Uh, a lot of it looked just like any government office I've been in, mm -hmm. you know, computers there. And uh, they had a command post that had a real wall of like TV sets so that if there was a hot thing going on, uh, they could follow it all over the world. That was a little bit impressive too. Mm. Um, but uh, other than that, it was it was government businesses. And, they've, and I've, I've been in US EPA, I've been in state government. Uh, it, uh, government offices look like government offices. And I'm gonna ask, cause I'm a food, I, I love food. Uh, did they feed you? Uh, no, they did not. They asked if I wanted a cup Shocking. of coffee. I think I, I think I got a bottle of water. Um, right. Well, that's, that's better than nothing. There are some yeah. government places you can go to here where they, I kid you not, they cannot, they cannot even give you water. Wow. They're not allowed. It's shocking. But that's not about, that's not, a, it's not about us. It's about your wonderful work. So you've got to do great research and see the FBI. Now, hotel-based research is probably something a person would think they could do quite easily. Uh, you know, anyone could do because it's, you know, oh, it's about a hotel. But did you have to go further than just using your own knowledge of someone who, you know, has been a someone, you know, going in as a guest at a hotel? Right. Well, that and that's that's one of the things that I, I teach in my research workshop is that you don't always have to do research. You can let the public's imagination fill it in because we've all been in a hotel room. I mean, I travel for business. Other people travel for business or for pleasure. You've all been in hotel rooms. We've seen hotel lobbies. We've seen all of those things. What I did do is I did research a little bit into commercial fires uh, and the defensive systems that hotels have set up to combat them, the way everything is compartmentalized and how the uh, uh, 
systems are set up for uh, uh, extinguishers and uh, uh, you know the overhead uh, water sprinklers. Yeah, and yeah. Like that. I, I, did, I did research some into that because uh, you know I have to have my my antagonist, my villain, figure out ways to defeat that. And how did you do that? Was that by researching off your own back, say, on the Internet, or was that actually speaking to people in the business? You know, that's that's it's it's a combination of things. It's uh, it's varying the types of explosives and flammable materials used. Um, some basic physics like what our fire likes to strike to rise, you know, likes to run up things. And some of it is exaggerate the ability to defeat the safety systems because the safety systems are pretty, uh, pretty good. That's why there's not a lot of uh, hotel fires, commercial fires, by and large, which is good for people to know. But, you know, writing fiction is kind of like being a con man. Because you're. Con- <laughs> I love you're- that. Oh, John, if I could take anything from the conversation that I'd, that I would, I'd love to copy. I love talking well, to you anyway, but that's something I would love to like to try and use in the future because <laughs> that's a we're, brilliant we're, quote. We're, we're both in the business of lying. You're making stuff <laughs> up. You make up a story. And that's why the, the little bit of research that you do is important because it, it, it sets the hook. It makes the person say, wow, this guy knows what he's doing. Now, later on, you're going to feed them not factual stuff, things that are in there not because they're factual, but because they make for a good story. They make for good uh, 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 action, mm-hmm. climactic action. And once you've got them hooked with the, with the, with the lies that they can believe, because every con man will start off by telling you things that you can believe. That's and true. later on, they will once they've got their confidence, which hence the name, they feed you the things that aren't so truthful. So that's what you you leave it to the reader to figure out what's factual and what's not. And hopefully, if you've got the story going good, they won't even care to check. Yeah, that's very very true. Very true. I like that. That's a very good point. Um, I remember, I, I do remember, John, asking you when we discussed Project Suicide all those moons ago, um, if you could cast, if you, because we, we kind of touched upon it, if you were going to make this into a, a film or a TV show, TV series, who would you cast? Can you give us anything without giving the characters away, if you understand what I'm saying? Um, well, as far as the... As the female Sally Sally Butterworth, Sally Pancakes, you'd want, I would think you'd want somebody uh, like a, uh, uh, what's her name from Silence of the Lambs? I'm, I'm blanking oh, out. Oh, Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. Somebody mm-hmm. like that, as attractive as that, but I, with a little bit of a harder edge. Because mm-hmm. Jodie Foster played the, F, the young FBI agent as rather subservient Mm. whereas sally butterworth is very much she recognizes she's fighting in a man's world and she fights kind of like a man you Mm -hmm. know she 
She strives for what she thinks she deserves, uh, the recognition. She's all business in a lot of respects. So it would be somebody like uh, Jodie Foster, but with a harder edge. As far as uh, Tom Tomasinski, um, I haven't really thought about this, but, uh, you know, like I said, maybe like a, like a Brad Pitt or a Keanu Reeves, uh, kind of a relaxed ladies' man. There's somebody Ooh. who's very comfortable in their skin uh, and the kind of personality that guys like to talk to and women like to go to bed with. Very cool. I like it. But the the bit the, the, the ultimate favorite casting. Yeah. Probably yeah. All, I, and I would say the favorite probably maybe for the author. You can tell me if I'm wrong. The villain. Ah, uh, the villain. I'm afraid if I say too much about the villain, it's going to give it away because. OK, we'll say no. we can leave it there. But I'm just going to ask, do you prefer writing a villain or a, or, or a hero? I think you like it's it's more fun. This goes for acting too. By and large, it's more fun to play the villain because the villains are very uh, can be very interesting characters. Any good villain is a very mm-hmm. interesting character. Think Hannibal Lecter. Uh, uh, think the shark and Jaws. You know, there's a lot there's a lot going on uh, with that. Or behind behind the the mind of that, and uh, a, a good villain should almost be a little likable in parts. Should be uh, entertaining. In my this case, my villain is very smart, mm-hmm. and that's part of how he can accomplish what he accomplishes. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun to both portray and to write villains because they're so meaty. There's there's so much behind them. You know, they, they, they've always said, you know, no villain thinks he's the bad guy. To him, he's doing what he needs to do. He's doing what is appropriate for him uh, or his uh, his organization. And uh, he sees himself as justified. Ends justify the means kind of things like that. And they're also often. Go ahead. No, no, I was just saying, I swear, John, you're doing the mind reading again. So I was going to ask you, do you believe in that, the, the, you know, the, the, the many, uh, the off-quoted thing of the villain never sees himself as the bad guy or the bad girl, but you've, right. already, you've already answered. Right. I, I just watched for like the hundredth time uh, a version of uh, Christmas Carol. Oh, one of my favorites. Yeah, this is the one with George C. Scott that they did over in Shrewsbury. In the, John, the John, that is my all-time favorite uh, version on Mine film. And I've actually done a tour of, Shro- of Shrewsbury to see where it's all filmed. Uh-huh. And it was absolutely brilliant. And I've actually met um, uh, the man who played the young, uh, well, younger Scrooge. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Very nice man. Yeah, very nice man. But, but And Ebenezer Scrooge is a perfect example. He certainly is a villain in the beginning, mm-hmm. but... He does not see himself as a villain. As a matter of fact, he sees himself as many times the injured party. You know, I lent, I lent you money and now you don't want to pay me. What did I do to you? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I always I always say when I watch this, I say, you know, everybody, they think of him as evil, but actually he's just disinterested. He's that's 
so man, to him, mankind is kind of a nuisance. And uh, uh, <laughs> he's looking out for himself. And, you know, that's how villains are, basically. They're looking out for themselves. They want respect. They mm -hmm. want the money they think they have coming to them. What have you? It's always, uh, like I say, they're often sociopaths where the suffering of others doesn't really enter into it. I also like going on to a more positive thing um, from discussing villains is uh, when you mentioned, uh, you know, for Butterworth, the fact that she feels and it's very prevalent for the way things unfortunately still are now, you know, women in male dominated industries uh, finding it very difficult to kind of get ahead and show they have to prove themselves even more than their male counterparts. And I guess you're touching upon that with her, her character. Right. Which, uh, it sounds well. It's it's a it's a negative situation, but you are being positive in the fact you're showing that this woman can excel. Yeah. The uh, uh, with with Sally Butterworth, um, she's very attractive, but to her, mm -hmm. this is more of a of a detriment than it is a uh, a benefit. And always part of her is. Tr trying to get past that, mm -hmm. trying to be recognized for her own abilities, her own uh, expertise, uh, her own intelligence. And so this is kind of an interesting byplay with Tom Tom. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a scene where they're both uh, in, in a bar and he introduces himself, you know, for the first time in a hotel bar where they're both staying. And they have a very interesting back and forth pattern where she's kind of half ignoring him, half attracted to him, uh, uh, but recognizing that I don't have time for you right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, this, I've, I've got work to do and mm -hmm. uh, good for you. You know, he says to her at one point when he when she's leaving the bar because they're both staying there. He says, I'm on eight. And she pats his shoulder and says, good for you. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, it's like. <laughs> I like that. Very good. <laughs> you know, she is. She's she likes the the the, the interplay. She likes the, uh, the the fruitaceous patter, but it's all business. I don't have time. Now, obviously, you had success with the Project Suicide uh, novel. Did you feel, um, is it, what I'm trying to, to ask is, as a writer, is there added pressure when it comes to writing a, a follow-up? If You know, even if it's a separate entity to the original. Right. So it's not like a continuation or trilogy sort of thing. Do you feel extra pressure? And if so, how do you get over that? And if you don't, you know, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, you do feel a little bit of pressure anytime you write anything, because I, I say to people frequently, you know, especially writer friends who say that uh, I, I got this book, I, I finished it, I want to get it out there, uh, I'm going to self-publish it because I want people to see it. And I'm like, well, first thing you need to do is go through it several more times and make sure, get feedback from people, that it's good or good enough, because if people... If you publish something that's not that good, not only are people not going to read it or want to read it, 
they're not going to want to read anything else you write. Very true. So, you know, it's impossible to make a, you know, a first impression twice. And so that with anything you write, there's always that feeling. I don't want to put it out there if it isn't the best I can do, because if people don't like it, it may turn them off to other things you've written or will write. So, yeah, there is a certain amount of that pressure. Which I can, yeah, I mean, that's very good advice you've said also. <laughs> I, I cannot think of, as soon as you said it, I mean, it, it happens a lot in life. This, You know, you cannot make the first impression twice. It's the impression you make is the impression you will make. And it's incredibly good words to live by of saying, look at it, look at it, look at it. You know, get somebody else to look at it as well to, to ensure that it is as good as you as you want it to be. Yeah, it's it's not unusual for people to uh, successful authors to revise a draft six or eight times. Wow! Go through yeah. it completely, reading it again with a with, with a with a new set of eyes as much as possible, and making revisions where necessary to improve the flow, to uh, uh, improve word choice, verb choice, uh, to cut material that that. That is unnecessary, even if you even if you like it, what's so-called killing your darlings. You've written a passage that you really think is great, but it slows down the narrative. Well, it's got to go. And, uh, it, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. You do it over and over. And then when you get the editor and professional editor is vital for fiction writing. When it gets to the editorial stage, the editor is going to do that as well with really fresh eyes because you could never look at it like an outside reader you have written it you have read it too much uh you can do only the best you can do an outside editor who knows what they're doing and they know the genre uh is vital to improve it uh and uh i always say your editor is a love-hate relationship kind of like a physical therapist you uh you like that they're helping you, but it's painful. <laughs> you know, well, they're making you change things that you thought were good. Well, I think also, as soon as you would talk about that, about you know the ability of having the an editor to look at it, they're going to be brutally honest with you because the problem yeah. I guess you'd have, and it's like with anything, but it'll be even more so with you. And I've spoken to others, other authors about this. It's your baby. Right. Uh, so you're, you, you know, you want to, I guess, you know, you know, you know, metaphorically hold it and look after it and make sure it's safe and you don't want anything to be changed about it. But yeah, you've, I guess you've got to have a very thick skin. It's like when I, I've yeah. spoken actors. Well, I, I think you've you, got to you handle a, rejection. Yeah, you make a good point that other people have said, you know, uh, books, a writer's work is his children. And mm-hmm. to a certain extent, that's true. And so you, you could take offense that somebody is bad mouthing one of your kids. But I think of it as more. I want to be told if my child is misbehaving. And that's where the editor comes in. Mm-hmm. They're like the head, the headmaster or the headmaster. Yeah, I mean, you, they tell you where your children are messing up. And so you can correct it. Hmm. That being said, the author has the final word, 
Uh, yes. But if you're, a, if you're a smart author, you'll take your uh, editor's suggestions 90% of the time. And obviously, these are two separate books you've you've created, two separate novels. Would you ever want to create something that's like a trilogy or well, not even say just a trilogy, something that runs across many different novels? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually working. I'm about 95 percent done on a sequel to Project Suicide. Ooh, um, can, I, can you tell us anything? Or that, I guess that might be uh, too many, too much away for those who've not read it. Yeah, uh, uh, I just I'll just say the title is uh, it's a working title right now. Basically, the bad penny, because a character from the original Project Suicide turns up and is causing mischief. Nice. So, for uh, uh, our, our my protagonists, Amy and uh, Deacon. Mm-hmm. And can we have you on to discuss it when it comes out? Absolutely, absolutely. Excellent. I don't know. It's I, like I said, I'm I'm in the middle of revising a couple other things, and I still got about two three thousand words to write on uh, Bad Penny. But mm-hmm. uh, so probably sometime in the next couple of years, it'll be out. Cool. Well, I would love to talk to you about that, John. I really would. That'd be, I mean, I've, I've enjoyed talking to you, you know, today. I, well, I always enjoy talking to you. It's interesting. It gives very good insight uh, into into being an author. I mean, who would have thought that you would have had to go as far as like looking to, an, you know, doing a tour of an FBI building? Right. But by God, it obviously pays off. So it's, it's yeah, well it's, worth uh, doing. Like I said, you don't it's one of those things where you don't have to do it, but it gives it just that little extra feel of realism when you do. So with regard to the genres you write in at the moment, would you ever see yourself doing like a full 360 and going to a completely different style, like say horror or complete sci-fi or something well, like it, that? It's funny you should say that because two of the drafts that I have completed and I'm working on revising, uh, one of them is a horror. It's a horror thriller. Oh, cool. And it's it's called uh, the working title is Ars Beneficia, which is Latin for the art of sorcery. Nice. And the other one is almost what you might call a, a woman's literature or chick lit, whatever, kind of like a Hallmark movie uh, type of story about a uh, an, an older man who is wife's dies and she always was upset that they couldn't have children. Uh, and now he thinks about having a child and he starts to get involved with what would be the process to do that? You know, not as not getting married to a young woman, but having a, a, a surrogate or whatever. And uh, that's called and a child shall lead him. And I'm in the process of pitching that to some uh, publishers right now. Nice. Very nice. And have you found having to, did you find changing genres a challenge? Or was it just something that you were like, right, I want to see how this will pan out? It wasn't that big a challenge to me because I have varied interests in what I read and in my choice of movies and stuff. Uh, I'll be as as likely to watch a, well, maybe not as likely, but I certainly enjoy many uh, melodramas and romantic comedies and uh, 
uh, horror movies and horror books and stuff. So for me, um, it's just kind of uh, changing your step a little bit to fall into a new cadence. Because, uh, you know, they're in my mind anyway. I can see the images. And so whether it's, it's uh, one genre or another, it's still basically the same process. Nice, nice. Uh, and I, I want to ask John, because we've obviously been discussing films, we have a mutual love of what I consider the greatest Christmas Carol version, which yeah, is the 1984 yeah. one uh, with George C. E. Scott. I'm, it's always nice to hear there's a, a fellow fan. Uh, what? Because obviously you, you know, you talk about the, the sort of films you like, things like that. Is there anything at the moment that's particularly grabbed your attention film-wise? Um, you, you mean something that's out current or something that... Uh, well, anything you have seen of late. I mean, current, yeah. I mean, like, say something like Oppenheimer or even, you know, um, a total different end of the spectrum, Barbie. Actually, like I that. have not seen Oppenheimer, but I'm looking to see that. I have seen some, uh, in the past, some uh, uh, TV movies and stuff about uh, the Enola Gay and the making of the atomic bomb and all that stuff. As a matter of yeah. fact... I say this to your listeners, one of the greatest books I ever read, and it's a nonfiction book, was called Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. And if you like that type of history, it's a fascinating read. Through It takes you through all the development of discovering that uh, uh, this is even possible. You know, the great physicists like Neil Bohrs and all these guys discovering whether this is even possible right through the development of the bomb and the juice. Um, so yeah, those kind of things uh, I'm always interested in seeing when they come out. Um, there's also one that is another historical movie. It's I think called the killers of the flower moon. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I have not seen it, but I'm very interested in seeing it. I've got good, heard good reviews from people I trust and it's an interesting part of history uh that most people don't really know about well certainly i mean i've seen oppenheimer and it was just wow it was uh, good? i cannot i cannot praise that film enough i mean i have a, a reasonably good knowledge of the manhattan project and what what happened you know how how that came about but even f- it's i was telling somebody about this and the strange thing is that even though i kind of knew what would happen i was finding myself getting very very tense watching parts of it so well, that's that's always a good sign it had the desired effect but it was interesting when you mentioned kind of previous things that have been made about it i always liked uh here i think it was called shadow makers but in the u.s it's released under the name of fat man and little boy yeah yeah uh, i saw that as well yeah yeah, I think that's a really good film. Really good. It was like a TV movie, wasn't it? Paul Newman, correct? Yeah. Paul Newman and Dwight Schultz. But yeah, right. it's uh, yeah. that was a very good film. But yeah, I would highly recommend to anybody who gets a chance to see it um, to, to do so. Now, I'm not, I feel that unfairly I've taken a bit away from you discussing that. So I want to no take, take it back to you, John, and ask the question, would you ever write historical novels? I've thought about that. The uh, the thing that the most dawning thing about that is uh, the research is even more extreme. Uh, yeah. it's, it's historical novels or high fantasy where you build mm-hmm. a world. There's a tremendous amount of architecture 
that has to be gone through. Um, and so, yeah, I thought about doing a historical novel, maybe something, I'm a big military history fan, maybe something related to World War II or something like that. Um, but uh, so far, I have not, I have not disciplined myself to undertake that. Maybe it will. Well, I will watch this space. I'd love to see you uh, to do something like that. That would be very interesting. Um, so in relation to purchasing your books uh, and learning more about what you're doing and getting in contact, John, how, uh, uh, how are our listeners best uh, place to do that, please? Right. The easiest way to get to checkout time, uh, and it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's, it's distributed through Ingram, so any place you buy books, you can order it. But the easiest way to get to it um, is uh, checkouttimenovel.com, all one word. And that'll take you directly to the Amazon page. And uh, it's available in uh, paperback, hardcover, and uh, Kindle. Excellent. And if you were trying to get the hands on Project Suicide? Same thing, projectsuicidenovel.com. And you have a web page so they can kind of follow what you're doing because yep. you do a blog as well, which is always fun sure, to read because you send me some stuff so I can have a look at it. Uh, it's thrillerjohnb.net. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I would suggest to all our listeners to, to get looking and uh, reading those things and more importantly, buying your novels because trust me, they are well worth it. I mean, you've heard how good this guy is just by listening to this podcast. Well, thank you very much. And one other thing I'd want to say to your listeners is, and this is true, just not just for my books, for, for any author that you like, after you read the book, post a Amazon review. It doesn't take much time. Give it a star rating, write two or three lines, takes you five minutes. And it means a lot, not only because people look at those and decide whether or not they're going to buy the book, but also because places like Amazon decide how they're going to place your book promotionally based on the number and quality of the reviews. So very positive thing. If you, if you like a re author, write a review. Uh, you have heard it here, guys and gals. Obviously, do that. Yeah, I think that's a that. I mean, that is a very valid point to make because I think people don't appreciate how important it is to leave reviews. Yes, I really don't. So you've heard it here first. To ham, yeah, you've heard it here first. Leave those good reviews for John and his work. It is well deserved. So I would say, John, we have been talking of Codswallop, as we say on this podcast, uh, and I cannot thank you enough for coming on. So uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you. I, it was my pleasure, as always. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Always love to talk about my stuff. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, sir.